Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sama Sambodasa namo tasa bhagavato alahato sama Sambodasa namo tasa bhagavato alahato sama Sambodasa Sabe sankhava anicca, sabe sankhava dukkha, sabe dhamma anathati. Now this evening, as the gatha, the beginning of this talk, will imply. I want to talk about the tilakana, the three characteristics, anicca, dukkha, anatta, and to talk about how they're used in the practice, which is called bhavana, the development of the body and the mind on the Eightfold Path and how it is used as a means to uh, increase the uh, progress on that path and how also it becomes the end of that path as well. So the three characteristics are to be regarded as both a means and the end of this uh, journey along the Eightfold Path. The three characteristics, anicca, Dukkha Anatta have a much deeper and wider meaning than the English translations. And seeing as how everyone in this monastery will be familiar with those words, I'll continue to use them in their party form. In particular, that sometimes that we feel that we can understand the full meaning of these terms. We think we know what Anicca means. And if we do translate it into an English word such as impermanence, that somehow that can limit our full appreciation of how deep that term truly goes into the experience of mind and world. And sometimes it's best just to leave the word untranslated, but just to pick up some facets of it Remember that each one of these uh, three characteristics, anicca, dukkha, anatta, uh, can very well be regarded as just aspects of one and the same thing, seen from different perspectives, that's all. <coughs> so you're looking at one dhamma in the practice of deep insight. You're aware and uncovering just one thing However, it can shine in one of three ways, anicca, dukkha, anatta. It is the interconnectedness of these three things, which was the reason why the Lord Buddha said such things as yad anichang, tang dukkhang. Now what is anicca? That is dukkha. And yang dukkhang, tang anatta, whatever is, is suffering, so it's whatever is dukkha. You should not ever regard that as a self, as me and mine, or a, a self, a soul. 
each one of these things implies the other two. They are facets of one of the same thing. So sometimes we think we can understand anicca, but we're not quite sure of anatta. It means that even anicca is not fully penetrated, not fully fully comprehended. It's why in that uh, gatha, which is uh, repeated many times by the Buddha in the suttas, he says, Sabe Sankara Anicca. I always like to point out that first word, that Sabe, that all, completely all, every conditioned thing, every Sankara is Anicca. And the point which I'm trying to make here is because there will always be some area of the mind, of the jitta, some area of existence which one hasn't fully seen as anicca is what stops one having the sabbe in front of that realization. If it's only a partial uh, <coughs> discovering or uncovering of anicca, it's still not enough to see the Dhamma. The uncovering of anicca has to be complete and you constantly see that the people in the world, sometimes even Buddhists, sometimes even meditators, who still cling on to some area of existence of being stable, as being Nietzsche, certain, permanent. It's because of that that they fail to see the Dhamma of the Lord Buddha. It's because of that last little piece of existence that they fail to leave the samsara, the perpetual wandering. The, one of the aspects of anicca which I always like to impress upon people is the aspect of anicca which is <coughs> the instability. I already mentioned that one of the translations of nicca is stable or sure or, or continuous. And uh, I like this uh, meaning because uh, it comes from my study of the Vinaya, uh, where uh, in the Vinaya Pitaka, if a person comes to bring food, say once a week, regularly on Wednesdays or Thursdays, then in Pali that's called Nicha Bata. Bata means meal. Nicha in this case you might say like regular or stable supply of meal. Something which happens every so often. And anicca is when that continuity, that regularity is stopped, is terminated. Anicca has the implication of something which was for a long time has now ceased for a long time. And this is an aspect of anicca which is rarely taught. So often that anicca is taught as rise and fall just like a pendulum going backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. But that pendulum is never looked at as stopping. It either rises or it falls, it either falls or it rises. But there's never that sense of the whole pendulum just disappearing and vanishing. The whole thing stopping. And that's part of anicca, which is an important uh, experience which gives a deeper meaning to the 
what the Buddha meant by anicca. When he said that the five khandhas are anicca, that the body is anicca, for example, he didn't just mean that it's always changing, it rises and falls. It means that one day it will fall and disappear. It will just <coughs> decompose into the four elements and just fade and merge with other four elements. And that which we call body will be indistinguishable just from the other mass of things in the world. Something which was is now gone. It stopped. It ceased. Anicca also contains this cessation, this thing's ending, stopping, these beautiful words which the Lord Buddha would say, in which the Aryas would, would praise. In the world we celebrate beginnings. In the Dhamma you celebrate endings, stoppings, getting rid of things, ending projects, not celebrating beginning new ones. This whole Dhamma is about getting rid of things, not accumulating new things. That's why you can see how the uh, understanding, the penetration of anicca, links in with the, the practice of giving away, relinquishment, nekama, and letting go. It's things which were with you are no longer anymore, a manifestation of anicca. Not only just the body, once there, now gone, showing it's not just a rise and fall, but something which was stable and lasted a long time, now is gone, and gone for a long time. And that's the same with Vedana as well. <coughs> to be able to see that as anicca doesn't just mean to see that these uh, experiences, sensory experiences, which we uh, sometimes uh, perceive, or we always perceive rather, in terms of nice or unpleasant or somewhere in between. Not just to see the, the pendulum swinging between these two extremes in the middle, the extreme of pleasant, the extreme of unpleasant, and somewhere in between. Sometimes that uh, pendulum swings wildly, very unpleasant, very nice, but always just in between, and neither pleasant nor not really unpleasant. Instead of just seeing that pendulum swinging from end to end in all the sense of experiences which you, you have, that's not enough to fully understand that Vedana is anicca. Because it's it's just the, uh, the symptoms of Vedana. It's not the, the cause or the, the screen of Vedana. The happiness, unhappiness in between, these are all played out on the screen of sensory experience. And it's to see that screen disappear. It's where you uh, get a deeper experience and understanding of anicca. There was sensory experience there being played out and now all the actors have gone home and the stage is empty and even the stage disappears. And this is where you find a deeper meaning of anicca, of something ceasing, stopping. This is <coughs> particularly important to notice when you, 
get into deep stages of meditation. When you go into deep stages of meditation, things end, they disappear. The body awareness which you've had for so long, so continuously, sometimes even in sleep, there's a little bit of body awareness there. Otherwise you wouldn't sort of uh, move and uh, turn over in your sleep to get greater comfort. The body awareness is there for so long, so continually throughout your life, that sometimes that people don't realize just what a burden, what a pain it actually is. You've got used to it. However, in deep meditation there does come a time when the body just disappears and it's gone. And to have that perception of right mind being separated from the body and to realize that the body, the Rupa Kanda, in this state, or, or a great part of it, is anicca. It was there and now it's gone. Seeing the anicca nature of such a kanda, that will give you a sense of dispassion towards it, an ability to let it go. If you just see it rise and fall and just change like a chameleon into different colors, into different experience, different shapes, from young to old and so on, healthy to sick and back to healthy again, just seeing that anicca nature of the body is not enough to gain the, the nibida, the revulsion, dispassion and letting go of this kanda. Very often that we intellectually can think we've let go of this kanda. We think that uh, we don't really associate or identify with the body. But it's only that when, for example, you don't get enough food that day, or you've got a pain in the body, or that you should be sitting longer and you decide not to. All of these things that show that you are really caught up with this body and its demands. You can't really let it go. But also that with this body comes the five senses. And all the Vedana which is connected with these five senses through sight, sound, smell, taste and physical touch. Very often that you just see them being played out, changing like different characters on a television screen. Sure enough the programs change that anicca you can understand. But to see the whole television disappear, together with the screen and the dials, to see that degree of anicca with the five senses is what will give rise to nibida, this revulsion, and viraga, dispassion. This is very important to have that degree of understanding of anicca in its cessation aspect. And of course, to be able to see the mind. Very often that people's understanding of the mind is limited because in the old simile of the mind being like a radiant mind covered by the clouds in the sky. That for most people who are caught up in the world there are so many clouds between their mind and their attention, they can only get various glimpses 
basically they can't see the mind, they don't know the mind, and they speculate about the mind in so many stupid ways. It's only when those clouds are parted and they fade and disappear, when the full moon comes out bright, clear, unhindered, unobstructed. It's only when the, the mind has been freed from the body and the five senses can you have any idea of what it truly is. And this is a time when through a lot of experience of deep meditation you can see that even that mind stops. That mind in first jhana disappears, ends. And another mind of second jhana arises. You start to see that different aspects of the moon, as it were, just being chopped off and disappearing chopped away and disappearing, chopped away and disappearing as the moon, the jitter, is whittled away until even the mind ends. To see the anicca of jitter through deep meditation, only when you can do things like that or when you can infer things like that by seeing most seeing bits of the moon being chopped off. If you saw a bit of the moon disappearing, then you'd realize that perhaps this moon is not so solid as you thought. And perhaps you can think, well, if a bit can be chopped off, maybe all of it can disappear. Perhaps through inference that you can understand how all these things are and each other. So when the Buddha taught about the five Kandas being Anicca. He was teaching not just to see their rise and fall, but to see their end as well. To see how they can go to cessation, not to rise again. <coughs> and to see that through knowing Anicca, through seeing the ending of things, the stopping of things, the finishing of things, to see what causes the continuance of this. Because we're seeing the end, you see how it ends, why it ends. You see what keeps it going. The Buddha said all these things, they have nutriments, ahara, which keep them going. It's fuel, just like a fire needs sticks, wood, oil or something to burn. Once that fuel is removed, the fire eventually must go out. <coughs> you start to see the fuel which keeps things which have risen and then fall, rising again. Why once they are they ended, do they keep rising again? Why is it when you finish one project, you start another one? Why is it that when one letter is written, another one has to follow afterwards? Why is it when one life is completed, you want to do another life? Why is it when one experience is completed, you seek for some more? When one meal is ended, you look forward to the next one. This is the problem, that which makes samsara continue. When things have risen and they've fallen, their job has been done, we make them do another job. It becomes the endless wandering around in the world of doing.
going, making, becoming. So when you actually start to see what causes this, the craving to be, the craving to become, to do, all coming from the illusion of self. When you can see that, you can actually stop that whole process. And then you can really notice anicca. You know that these things will cease. When you can see the process, and you know the fuel has been taken away, then you know that you're an arahat. The fuel has been removed. And you know what's going to happen next. Anicca, the parinibbana, everything is finished. It's just like a fire without fuel, it's still the embers are still hot. And they cool, 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 cool until they're so cool that there's nothing left. Paridibbana. Any child should be seen in that way and also respected in that way, even like worshipped. To worship the ending of things in monastic life. See how many things you can finish and rather, starting, rather than starting new projects. It's the way of the world to sort of begin new things, start new things and continue doing that. It's one of the goals of this monastery is to come to a point where that's it, no building. The nun's monastery, that's it, it's finished. Sometimes people would say, well it's good to have something else, we need this, we need that. No. Now's the time to allow cessation to be worshipped rather than building. So put ending foremost in our mind rather than beginning. Because isn't this what we're supposed to be trying to do? To be ending defilements, not making new ones. To be ending samsara, not starting a new chapter. To be ending commitments rather than taking on new ones. To be simplifying rather than complicating. So getting rid of things in our hut, getting rid of things in our mind rather than putting more things in there. This is the whole movement of anicca. Not just rise and fall, but stopping, ending, finishing. Remember Ajahn Jakra giving a talk once many years ago on the story of Angulimala where the word which really went deep into the psyche of Angulimala when he was following after the Buddha was the word stop. And sometimes that word stop, a manifestation of anicca, is a word which you can use in your meditation as a mantra, as a hint to yourself to stop. If you're thinking a lot, if the mind is wandering, or if the mind is concerned with the body and with the senses and pain and noise, stop. If you're wondering what to do next, where to go, stop. If you're walking meditation on the path and the mind isn't still, stop. 
even standing still might give the, the nudge to the mind to also stand still. And in truth, it's as easy to stop walking on the path and stand still as it is to stop the mind. If you don't have confidence and faith in that, just stop. I think if I remember correctly, Ajanyana telling the story of a, was a novice or a monk, I think it was a novice, he was listening to a talk of Ajahn Chah and it was going on and on and on. And he wondered when it was ever going to stop. And he was always thinking, when is it going to stop? Because he was hurting and he wanted to go to the toilet or something. And then, instead of thinking, when is Ajahn Chah going to stop? He turned around and to himself and said, when am I going to stop? And so he stopped. He went into a very beautiful meditation. This stopping, this ending, this finishing of things, that's what you should look for in your meditation. Not getting new things, not a, a new experience of jhana, and a, another experience, you've got that jhana, I want another one, second jhana, then I want a, another one. End, it, end things. Look upon ending experience. Stopping this whole process. As if your mind is a runaway train, and you want to stop it. Put on the brakes. End. Cut off the fuel supply. Turn off the petrol. And then things start to slow down. You're ending, you're stopping, and you're experiencing anicca. The ending of all things. The ending of relationships. The ending of doing. The ending of going. The ending of the sensory playing in the sandpit of the five candles. The ending of the sandpit itself, the candles. Everything finished and done with. Put away. Only there can there be peace. Sometimes people in the world, they want to get things finished so they can have some rest. Get things out of the way. And you find that People have got a sort of right idea, but they find that whenever they get one thing out of the way, there's another thing to do. As soon as one project is ended, another one starts. They wonder when they're ever going to finish, when they're ever going to get everything out of the way. So you get your five candles out of the way. You get your sensory experience out of the way by stopping, ending, finishing. That's anicca, the ending of samsara, the ending of sensory experience, the ending of the candles. When they're ended, they're fulfilled, completed. It's a word in English, complete, means filled and ended. You want to complete the task, you have to end it. The other aspect of the Dhamma is dukkha. Sabe Sankara Dukkha. And it's always because there's some part of experience of existence we still think is pleasurable. That's why we won't be willing to end existence. 
as I mentioned to someone in the interviews, again one of Ajahn Jacko's uh, fav favorite similes from Nasruddin, who he said once was eating chilies, hundreds of chilies he'd eaten already. His face was red, his eyes were streaming, and he was in great pain. And someone asked him, what are you doing that for? And Nasruddin replied, I'm looking for the sweet one. And that's a very beautiful simile of the stupidity of human beings and other beings in samsara. Even though we're experiencing suffering, we will continue to indulge sensory experience, to indulge life, because we think the next one will be the sweet one. You may have been disappointed so far. It doesn't really matter how many hot chilies we've eaten and how much it's burnt and hurt us. The stupidity is that we think the next one will be the sweet one. There's also the, the wrong view to think there can be a sweet chili rather than the hot one. In all of the world, in all of the worlds, in all types of experience, to be able to see that the very nature of five candors, the very nature of sensory experience, is such that it must always be dukkha. But <coughs> it is the idiosyncrasy of the mind, it is the hope of the mind, the desire of the mind to find happiness, so much so that it believes in that happiness somewhere. And it's part again of meditation to see that the activity of the senses in and of itself is dukkha. People in the world think that it's only dukkha if you attach to it, you can do anything you want as long as you let it go afterwards. But you watch them and they cry and they get depressed and they've all got their therapists. What the Buddha was saying that Sankara is dukkha. You're saying the senses are dukkha, the candors are dukkha. That rupa is dukkha, vedana is dukkha, sanya is dukkha, sankara is dukkha, vijnana is dukkha. It is in their very nature to be what uh, the Buddha called abhada. I like to translate that as an irritation, as a burden, as a heavy weight. And to be able to see the dukkha of existence means that you will not value it. If you truly see something as being dukkha, then you will not pick it up. You will not play with it. You will not indulge it. And it will disappear from your experience. In meditation you think, you wonder, you fantasize because you haven't penetrated fully that that's dukkha. Intellectually, superficially you may say that's dukkha, but you're only fooling yourself. <coughs> if you fully see it, you will not follow that. If you fully see that, say, sexuality is dukkha. I've seen many monks uh, give beautiful talks about the, the suffering 
of sex and the suffering of relationships and then they go just robe and get married. It's superficial. But to fully see that, to deeply see that, is where that you are leaving the world. And of course, one of the most beautiful ways of seeing the suffering of the senses is to compare the experience when those senses have ceased to the experience when those senses are active. It is one of the reasons why the Lord Buddha said that the destruction of the asavas is dependent upon jhanas. He said that because only in jhanas can you get perspective of dukkha. The bliss of being aloof, removed, apart from the five senses and the body. That bliss which is born of that aloofness, which is created by that aloofness, which rests on that aloofness, that separation. That shows you, if you reflect and and look upon that and figure it out, that will prove to you that these five senses are a whole heap of suffering. You have a comparison. The peace, the beauty, the delight of the jhanas compared to what you're experiencing now, even if you're enjoying this Dharma talk, it's nowhere near as enjoyable. It cannot compare to experiencing a jhana. The most blissful experience you can have with the senses is just like a piece of shit compared to the beauty of jhanas. Sorry for being gross, but sometimes you have to use expletives to make a point. When you can actually understand this and see this, and again, you can only understand and see this through experience, you can imagine it, but that's not strong enough to break the, the habit, to break the wrong view. When you experience that, and you understand the reason why there's bliss in jhanas, then you'll understand why the world of the five senses is dukkha. Not attached to these five senses is dukkha. Not attached to the experience in the world is dukkha, but they are dukkha. They're irritation, they're a weight, they're a burden. Once you can know that, then of course there will be nibbida towards that world, a revulsion towards that world of the five senses. And that has to manifest that there's no way in the world would you ever leave monastic life. There's no way in the world where you want to get involved in an experience which is just so burdensome, so heavy, that the mind has to incline to solitude. The mind has to incline to monasticism, has to incline to spending as much time as is possible alone, secluded from the world, secluded from the five senses, secluded from the body, in quiet, peaceful meditation. If you understand that dukkha of the body and that dukkha of the senses, you'll let it go. 
Only when you fully see that can you let it go. That's why I say that that degree of insight, that degree of understanding, will make it automatic that you dwell in jhanas. And any person who says they've seen dukkha and they cannot attain a jhana, I just don't believe them. They, they just... The insight, the understanding isn't deep enough. They haven't truly seen the suffering of the world, the suffering of the five senses, the suffering of the body. They're still playing around with it, valuing it, and it's still an important part of their life, so much so that they cannot let it go. Because that's all you need to get into a jhana, is to let go of the body, the five senses, and all that world outside. To fully abandon it, have no interest in it, and allow it to go to cessation, and just to stay with the mind. To do that much, and to fully do it, means you'll be an anagami, complete uh, lack of concern, complete nibbida, viraga, towards the karma loka, this world which people delight in and think is such a fantastic, wonderful place. But of course, you all know that that's not enough. It's a great deal of dukkha has been seen. But to see the dukkha of the chitta, the dukkha of the mind, that's a hard one to see, but it's because every jhana ends, ceases. You can't say jhanas rise and fall because there's a stability there. They're there and they're gone. Seeing the goneness of the mind, the end of the mind, and seeing that which is an ending, the beauty of ending, the freedom of an ending, that's where you can let go, that's where you can see the suffering of the jitta. Even mental consciousness, the mind, even that you see is an irritation. That's why the Lord Buddha said after a jhana you should see that this is just a sankhara. It is formulated, it comes into existence. It's suffering. And to turn away from that and to bring up the the deathless, Nibbana. See, that's the only place where everything ends, ceases, is finished. That's where satisfaction, if you like to call it that, the ending of dukkha is to be found. So, to be able to see Sabe Sankara Dukkha, all of this is Dukkha all of the experience in the world compared to Nibbāna is dukkha. That's why they said Nibbāna is the highest happiness. And a person who has perceived the highest happiness will regard everything lesser as dukkha. 
That's what the meaning of dukkha is. Not quite good enough. And not quite good enough is suffering. So when you're meditating to look at the reason why you can't let things go. It's because you still think they're happiness. If when you're meditating there's a blockage in the mind because you're thinking, just say, that's dukkha. That's a pain, that's a burden. Why am I playing with it? Don't I realize just how much suffering this is? And if you've had any experience of that which lies beyond, whether it's silence or the nimitta or bliss, recall that experience and compare it to the blockage which you're playing with right now. Compare it to, say, thinking. And that which is called sati, including memory, will understand that the, what the thinking is so gross so heavy and so burdensome and so painful compared to silence, to nimittas or whatever, that the mind will let it go through that understanding. The mind will always go to where it thinks happiness is. And you can use that technique of understanding dukkha. And the ending of this is sukha to propel you deeper into the meditation. Ending of things, stopping, taking away the interest, the fuel, which keeps the activity of mind, such as thinking, such as looking here, looking there. The activity of mind which keeps on checking through the five senses and won't let them go. To take the fuel away from that, by realizing this is complete waste of time, it's futile, it never lead anywhere, it's suffering, it's an irritation, it's a burden, it's a boil, it's a dart, it's a... Know that, and things end. If you know the world is dukkha, at the end of these five candles, you won't take up another body. If you only think it's dukkha, you just go round and round many more times in samsara. So don't take the Sabbe Sankara Dukkha teaching sort of too, too lightly. It's deep, it's powerful. And take it everywhere. In particular, sometimes people think that out there is Dukkha, but in here is Sukkha. The, th the thing which watches is if it was impartial, an objective observer of all of this. And it sees dukkha, but it isn't dukkha itself. As if that you were, as if you were in some hermetically sealed room or some space suit, and you weren't touched by the world. Sometimes people have that idea that they're watching as if in a space suit, untouched by the dukkha in the world. Now that which watches, you think, is not, not dukkha. That which watches, people think, is pure, is, uh, <coughs> is essential, is happiness. It's just outside where the dukkha lies. 
as you penetrate more and more into the truths of the Buddha, you find that dukkha goes right to the heart of you, of everybody. Right in the very middle there is dukkha. It's like an apple which is rotten right the way through to the core. Sometimes you might think of just peeling away the bad bits, peeling away the bad bits, so you can have some nice sweet bit of apple to enjoy and eat. But as you peel away and peel away and, and gouge out the bad bits, you find after a long while that once you've gouged all the bad bits out, there's no apple left at all. No core. The dukkha goes right to the very very center. The doer, the knower, is dukkha. Knowing is dukkha. Experiencing is dukkha. That's what jhanas teach. No matter how much happiness, how much bliss you get in the first jhana, compared to the second jhana, that's just so much dukkha. And that actually really changes your whole perception on this, this thing of happiness suffering. The first time you gain a, a first jhana, it just blows you away, the greatest bliss you've ever experienced in life. If you're not a Buddhist, you might think you've seen God. You might think you're even enlightened, this is Nibbana. It's powerful, beautiful, amazing. <coughs> and then one day you get into a second jhana. Compared to that, that first jhana is just so coarse, so gross, so much suffering. How was it that something which was so powerful and beautiful and blissful is now dukkha? same experience. You see how the perception can be so perverse. It's how this perception can just fool you again and again and again. And it, you say, I have experiences, it's true, it's real. First-hand knowledge. I've actually seen God, people say. The perception has fooled them. Why that the one of the famous sayings in the suttas is what the Aryas say is dukkha. Ordinary people, worldlings say is sukha. What the worldlings say is dukkha, the Aryans say that's sukha. It's completely opposite. <coughs> that's why be careful of your understanding of dukkha. If you can say to your friend sitting next to you, you're at least a stream winner, a sotapanna, without worrying about parajikas. <coughs> you can actually say that, then at least you've got some uh, confidence you've understood dukkha. Otherwise, if you're still a puttachana, remember that saying, that what you say is, is dukkha, the Aryans say is sukha. When you say sukha, the Aryans say is dukkha. That dukkha is hard to see. And of course, you can understand where craving comes from because that we pick up suffering thinking it's happiness. We pick up samsara, we pick up <coughs> that which keeps us going from birth to birth to birth. If you could truly see just how painful this was, if you could truly see the 
the dukkha of sensory experience, even the dukkha of mind, the whole source of that which keeps rebirth happening, the cause of it will be abandoned. The link has been seen, the house builder, and then it can be destroyed. You let go of, abandoned, relinquished, gone. Be able to see that dukkha. And by seeing that dukkha, no more will there be any taking up of, of existence, of bhava, no more taking up of life, no more taking up of wanting to experience this, that, know this, gain understanding of that. All of that you see is futile, is dukkha, is suffering. You let go and develop that peacefulness of abandoning, of ceasing. Which point, seeing the dukkha of the knower, seeing the dukkha of the doer, why do you keep doing things? Why do you keep planning? Why do you keep disturbing the mind when you're meditating? You're sitting there, and why, why are you always disturbing it? Basically because you think that's happiness. I'm not saying that the result of your doing is happiness, but you think even doing itself is happiness. The delight in, in interacting in the world. In just adding something to it, controlling it. The delight of doing. Because a lot of time people think they are someone if they do a lot. It's the delight in being. To be is to do. The delight in the self. See if you can contemplate the doer to know it as suffering. Again, in deep meditation, especially in jhanas, the doer disappears. And that's such a relief to just be able to sit here, effortless, because there's no one there to do any effort. Peaceful, because the doer has gone to sleep or disappeared. I'm not interrupting you anymore. It's like having a boss always telling you what to do, ordering you around, and then suddenly that boss has died. Gone. And it's such a relief. Not to always be told what to do, to be blamed, to feel guilty, to be ordered around. How many of you get disappointed in meditation? Where's that disappointment coming from? The doer. The doer is just giving you a hard time in disappointment or frustration. It's not disappointment or frustration that's the problem, it's the doer behind that. Saying, come on, do something else, you're not doing enough, you're not doing it well enough, you're not doing it good enough. Try this way, try that way, try some other way, just stop. Realize the doer is suffering and then you won't value and worship doing. You worship stopping, ending, ceasing. Then of course, by mentioning the doer and the knower, those of you who have heard me talk many times know that this is uh, going to the third of the three characteristics. Sabe Dhamma Anatta Anatta, non-self, not me, not mine, nothing belonging to a self, nothing to do with a self, 
No one here, emptiness, Wang in Thailand, in Thai. It's complete nothing. Sometimes you say there's nothing. People think that nothing is just a uh, transcendent, transcendent word for something important. And nothing is just another word for God. Sometimes what happens, you have like Nibbana. It's just a going out of the flame and people think that Nibbana is something. The Amitadhatu, the deathless element. And people think that that's some realm somewhere. I remember early on someone came and said, yeah, we believe in Nibbana as well. It's a planet just beyond the solar system. And that's where you go when you're enlightened. To Nibbanaville. But to see that the emptiness of all of this, not just the doer is dukkha, the knower is dukkha, but to see that that is not the self, that is not an essence, there's no being in here watching, there's no person flicking switches, pulling levers, pulling the strings like a puppet, there's no one pulling those strings. It's an automatic process of cause and effect. To see the Rupa Kanda, this body is without an essence, means that you can let it go. It's not mine, nothing to do with me. To see Vedana, the pleasure and pain, nothing to do with you means you become serene towards the, the pains and the pleasures in the body and in the vision and in the hearing. Remember once <coughs> someone was criticizing Venerable Sariputta, really sort of blasting him and afterwards they asked, didn't you get angry? And he said, no, of course not. Just, this is just sound, that's all. It's going to be unpleasant, sometimes pleasant, that's what sound is. It's not mine. Thoughts, all of these aren't yours. So don't, don't worship them. Don't put them on your mantelpiece as great achievements, as if they were uh, cups and trophies which you've so painstakingly thought out and won. Don't put your thoughts and ideas as trophies on the mantel shelf of your mind. Let all this go. This is not nothing to do with you. Thought comes up and it's gone. Today you're right, tomorrow it's wrong, then it's right again. Just forget all of that. When you actually just see that none of this is yours. That the doer is just a, <coughs> a conditioned response. It's not coming from you, it's coming from somewhere else. Very interesting when you uh, investigate what does? Where does this chaitanya, this intention, that which uh, generates a movement of mind, a movement of speech, a movement of body, where does that actually come from? Why do you decide this instead of deciding that? And you sort of investigate that, you find that it's external causes that's the point of someone giving a talk, to brainwash you. That's why you read the Dhamma, to create the jadedness in your mind 
which will create Nibbāna, which will end Jaitana. That's why we needed a Buddha to start the cause, the first seed in this period, which will create the Jaitanas in all the Arahats to become enlightened. And their teachings created the Jaitanas in their disciples. And that seed, their Dhamma, created the, the Jaitana the will, the intention in their disciples, and so on, and so it's still occurring. You find the trade and the, the will, nothing to do with you. You've got no choice in this, no say in this. It just happens. It's actually beautiful when you see this, because then there's no sense of guilt or remorse or praise or feeling good about yourself or bad about yourself. It's nothing to do with you. Also, there's a sense of patience when you see this is just a process. You try and hurry it up or you try and slow it down, but it's not you who's hurrying it or slowing it. This is just the causes and effects. That's all it is. You just get out of the way. And the sooner you get out of the way, the better. As soon as you practice anatta, instead of just thinking about it, the smoother the practice will become. Especially in meditation, when you realize there's no one there. There's no one doing this, there's no one seeing this. It's just vinyana, consciousness, that's all. It's just the play of the magician. That's what the Lord Buddha <coughs> compared consciousness to, just the magician. Just putting rabbits out of the hat. Just conjuring up things. Just illusion. All that you see. The play of consciousness, just an illusion drawn in nothing, which people think is so real, so real they'll fight to the death over, and they'll argue over, they'll get so much suffering out of an illusion, a fantasy. They'll see that all that's conscious, that which knows, is just completely illusory. You can do that, that things begin to disappear. All that you hold is real, important, valuable. The important thing here is hold, disappears, ends. To be able to contemplate anatta to that degree, where the very middle of all that you think is real is nothing, emptiness. So only in emptiness can there be any peace. When there's something there, there's something to be done. When there's nothing there, there's nothing to be done, because there's no one to do it. Of course, that might sound nice, but it's only words. To be able to actually do that, the anatta, non-self, is again an, a stopping. It's an ending of things, an ending of this idea of a core and essence behind you. Sometimes I've given a simile of, in the old days when I used to go to the cinemas, people used to smoke in the cinemas. So you could always actually see the, the image on the, the screen, but you could also see just the, the, the rays from the projector. And sometimes you do that, you look for the images of the screen. 
And you could very easily take them to be real and get involved in the action you saw on the cinema screen and be shocked when something frightened happened, happened become emotional at the end when every, the man met the woman and they rode off into the sunset or whatever it was. Getting angry, getting afraid. You get really involved in that screen, but sometimes you'd look at where those images were coming from. You'd follow the rays backwards. And the rays would always concentrate and come to one point in the projector. See where all this is coming from, where consciousness is coming from. One point in the mind. And to see that's just a machine. It's cause and effect. That's all it is. Even that isn't real. Isn't permanent. Isn't essential. And very often the investigation or the insight into anatta is very much like that. Like following about where does all this come from? You've got the screen there, in front of you. The screen of experience, what you think you know. Follow the rays back to the knower. What is this knower? What's knowing this? And see if you can dismantle the knower. See, that's anatta. So that in all of experience, outside, and here, this Bahida is like outside of the knower. That which is on the screen of experience is Bahida, external. Internal is at this very point from where you're watching. This very point from where you're doing. To see Ajata, the Adi Atta, right in the very middle, to see that there's nothing there. Sabe Dhamma Anatta. The point from where you watch and all the sankaras, all the things which are on the screen, all the things which you can experience, and the thing behind experience. All Anatta. And seeing that you see Anicca can see his end. You see dukkha, you see the suffering, because that experience is bliss. (coughs) It's blissful because you know that now the process has been seen for what it is. The illusion has been broken. And you know that the cause for continued existence has been unraveled and destroyed. You know that life has come to come to an end. The samsara has been unplugged. And you know Nibbāna, you know Parinibbāna, you understand what the Buddha taught and why, and what a Buddha is. So this is the uh, reflection, the practice, the investigation into the Tilakana, Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta. It's very deep, very profound, and only when <coughs> you can say that you're a stream winner can you say that you know these things. If you cannot say that, that you're a stream winner 
it means there's something somewhere you haven't seen. Anicca hasn't gone deep enough. Dukkha, not fully comprehended. And anatta, there's something which you just haven't figured out yet. Practice deeply, practice well, develop a strong mind. It is both the the field from which you can dig out insights and it's also the empowerment which gives you strength to dig out those insights. Bhavana, develop all of these things and they will happen by themselves. So that's my talk this evening on the three characteristics of existence, Satilakana. Has anyone got any comment or question on this for this evening? Okay, do we hand on my own? <laughs>